0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
2: TikTok might look like fun for your kids, especially the younger ones, as they watch short, funny videos, but it turns out that entertainment might be doing more harm than good when it comes to their brains. We'll go in depth into how TikTok and other social media could be making it harder for kids to concentrate. Elon Musk has bashed Twitter lately. ...over its content and policies. So what is he doing now as the company's largest shareholder? We'll try to find out. And Russia is facing its heaviest criticism yet over the war in Ukraine. Images are coming out of Ukraine of bodies of dozens, maybe even hundreds of civilians on the streets. Apparently killed by Russian forces, President Biden now calling for a war crimes trial against vladimir putin
1: we'll talk with a man in ukraine who says he's coordinating a group of cyber warriors to go after russia new u.n reports um, not hopeful we can slow down global warming uh, together we go in depth into what we uh, hope uh, what kind of hope we have left before it uh, maybe is too late and then valley fever once thought to be mostly a problem in central california in the central valley but uh, it's spreading now across the west and climate change might be a factor in that
2: Welcome to the beginning of a new week. Oh, thank you. Yes,
1: (laughs) Happy to be here. Yeah,
2: we start, though, with TikTok kids. Dr. Norman Fried is a clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, specializing in family parenting counseling. Uh, Doctor, thanks for being with us. So I I read uh, uh, the sort of derogatory phrase TikTok brain this morning. Is there such a thing as uh, developing a TikTok brain?
3: First of all, thank you for having me. I I would not say, I wouldn't be quoted as having said that there's such a thing as a TikTok brain, but there is a possibility that our brain, from the research that's being done these days, that our brains are becoming accustomed to the quick and constant changes that the TikTok environment actually offers. We went from a three-minute video now down to 15 or 16-second clips And the kids that are involved in it are actually becoming almost more attuned to constant stimulation, quick changes, almost because of neuroplasticity, their brains are actually saying, I need more, I need it faster, I need it now. Like riding a train but getting off at every stop as opposed to staying on for the full ride. So I wouldn't call it a TikTok brain, but it definitely is affecting sustained attention to tasks.
1: Makes sense to you that this would happen or could happen, at least among some kids, because you get that little dopamine hit from the, the small video instead of the longer one now.
3: Right. So let's talk about that. So the dopamine in our brains is a neurotransmitter that is what's really kept us alive sociobiologically for billions of years. It basically puts our brains on alert. It says, perhaps there's danger, perhaps there's an enemy, uh, I've got to stay alert. But in our current world, with TikTok being 15, 20 second hits, we're getting a dopamine hit. It's almost like the kids are in a candy store or some people call it the dopamine machine where they all of a sudden are getting this quick rush and they're on hyper alert and they like it. And that's really a problem because that dopamine is not going to run for a whole class period when a child is listening to a teacher speak or when he's sitting down for an hour studying an exam, what's going to happen is he's going to be looking for the quick reward, the, the immediate reinforcement, that, that quick gratification. It's becoming a snack versus a full meal or a dessert versus a main course. And the main course is what our kids need to tolerate to do well academically.
2: Okay, so other than forbidding kids to watch TikTok, and good luck with that,
1: I'm on uh, Instagram, Mom. It's not TikTok.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, what's the solution? Well, we really can't do the forbidding. It's their culture, and we're really just observing it from the outside. And it is there are possible po- uh, positives as well. What we can do, a from parental perspective, is we can do some limiting. We can say you can do you know you can have your TikTok for about an hour a day you can cut up that hour into three different 20-minute f- segments if you want. You can have that TikTok after you've completed the work that requires protracted sitting and making sure that you get, you know, the hour of work in. We can do something called chunking, which is when the brain learns, you train the brain to actually experience information that's important in chunks. So children who are already starting off with some some um, attentional issues would benefit from perhaps sitting for a half hour, getting work done, then give them a break and allow them to do a few minutes of TikTok. Then go back for another 20 to what minutes to a half hour of work. You're rewarding the more protracted behavior with something that allows the brain to feel a quick hit. Um, not too much of it because you don't want to give dessert before the main course. The other thing I want everyone to know is that we can also train brain we train our children's brains by rewarding them for the, the amount of time they sit if you put in a good amount of time working on your projects this is going to be your reward whether it's going to be some kind of a star towards something you want to purchase or a greater time later on social media we want to inspire not punish we don't, we don't want to extinguish the, the interest in TikTok we want to shape an interest in in more long-term, long-range
1: interests. Dr. Norman Fried there, clinical psychologist, professor at Columbia, specializing in family parenting counseling. See,
2: my attention span is about three seconds, so TikTok is like a
1: feature length film. That's right. <laughs> right. so long for you. You can yeah, only make like, it through five. It's like, wow. Still to come, we go to Ukraine, talk with a man who says he's looking to fight back against Russia in the cyber world, and also new report from the UN, skeptical we can do anything to stop global warming soon.
2: Right now, though, Twitter's largest shareholder is one of the company's biggest critics. Elon Musk just bought more than 9% of the company. Now, that is currently worth more than $3 billion. Musk has slammed Twitter's policies of late. So what's his end goal? Adam Rosari is a digital marketing and social media expert with Agency Partner Interactive. Adam, thanks for being With us. So the early word, uh, I think, this morning when the news broke was that he wanted to be a passive investor. But why would anybody spend three billion dollars, even somebody as rich as Elon Musk, uh, to be a passive investor in anything?
4: (laughs) Great question. and Great to be with you. I think in this case, he's just kind of using his words carefully as it pertains to the SEC. I I really think that a guy like Elon Musk, and like you said, about three billion dollars here, I mean, how passive would you be if you invested three billion dollars of your money into a company, right? I'd clean house, <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, right? So you know, it's interesting. March twenty fifth, barely a week ago, uh, Elon Musk had this survey that that he actually released on Twitter, and he was asking an important question to himself. He was asking, uh, "Do you believe Twitter rigorously rigorously adheres to the basic principles of free speech?" And he was really kind of noting that he, see, he sees free speech as essential to a functioning democracy. I think a lot of people would agree with that. And in his survey, 70% of people, a little over 2 million votes or so, said, no, Twitter does not rigorously adhere uh, to the basic principles of free speech. And so here's Musk. He's used Twitter as an outlet for himself. He's used Twitter to, in some cases, you know, influence the, the value of his other companies, Tesla and, and uh, I believe uh, get a lot of momentum behind SpaceX. And so, you know, I think Elon's doing a few things here. I think, one, he's trying to uh, preserve and perpetuate the basic ability of social media to to be a true facilitator of open and honest dialogues, because I think he knows that free speech is really important to innovation and creativity and basically the kind of brain power that he needs to continue growing SpaceX. He he sees humanity as a a, a multi-planetary species, right? And to make that a reality, I mean, you got to have some really smart people sharing some Really creative ideas in, in a public forum. And so I think he's trying to preserve the basics of free speech there. But I also think he's just having some fun. Um, he's now buying a social media platform that he's used personally himself. And I, I think the world was really kind of mystified and partially entertained watching him spar with guys like, you know, Vladimir Putin and his generals over Twitter, uh, offering internet access to Ukraine when, when the Russians took it out um and going head to head with a lot of the world leaders i mean elon's definitely a guy who's not afraid to to speak his mind
1: well it's the old billionaire game of hey if you don't like how something is you just buy it and then <laughs> you'll be right. fine at the other end so does this i mean passive now but does it kind of end up leading to some sort of buyout if he wants it to and then he takes over the place and because and, he also questioned quite openly on twitter maybe we need some other kind of new platform but then why do you need a new one if you're gonna buy the one that's already here
4: you know passive in my mind and, and I don't know the the legalities here, but there might be some subjectivity to it, right? I mean, Elon now owns four times more of Twitter than Jack Dorsey. So whether it's, you know, some of those more quiet boardroom discussions that take place or, you know, making leadership staffing changes and and recommendations, I, I just don't see this guy being a truly passive uh, owner here. I, I know. I don't think he wants to be CEO of Twitter. I don't think he wants to own it outright.
1: He's got enough um, companies.
4: <laughs> yeah, he's he's a busy guy, right? And I mean, shoot, come on. Like from from building Tesla to also trying to get people to Mars, uh, that's a lot of stuff going on there. So, but should uh, we try to leave the channel here? Yeah, but Adam, ahead.
2: shouldn't we be maybe a, a little bit concerned that one of the richest guys on the planet is now the majority uh, owner shareholder? in one of the foremost social media platforms. I mean, is that all good or is there, you know, you you were saying before that he's like a a guy who's into, uh, uh, you know, first amendment rights and free speech rights and all that other stuff until what one day the tweet goes against something that's his interest and he's no longer so benign.
4: Yeah. Very fair point. Right. Very fair point. And when you think about the leaders of big tech, I mean, it kind of is a billionaires club, right? Uh, These are all people that are, well, they don't exactly walk in, in the shoes of everyday Americans. Uh, Elon Musk, he seems to be, uh, he's a little bit different. I mean, he is a, he's a first generation American immigrant who, you know, he's lived in other countries and he knows really what free speech means, I think. And so, of course, you have to be mindful of and, and cautious of, you know, anybody that would try to maybe overexert their influence or, you know, do things to silence others, right? And, and I just don't see Elon being the guy who, who will do that in a public sort of like town hall kind of way, maybe at the boredom level, maybe, you know, inside the the halls of his office. But, you know, when, when it's an open and honest conversation, I think he wants to see that kind of stuff take place. And shoot, I mean, if you watch his interactions with Joe Rogan, he seems to be a pretty thoughtful guy. And frankly, I'm, I'm excited to see what he might be able to do for this platform. I, I think Twitter's leadership team does need some more diversity of thought. I think it does need some people who are a little bit kind of counter to the narrative and, and just counter to the culture in some ways, people who want to get in and, and break things and, and rebuild them in better ways.
1: Somebody tweeted, Elon, and, and tell him to put the edit button on there. Finally, Adam Braseri, uh, digital marketing and social media experts, agency partner Interactive.
2: Coming up, we head to Ukraine. where man says he has been organizing a secret group of cyber warriors to take on Russia and a bad little fungus that causes valley fever is spreading across the western part of the United States, and it might be because of climate change.
1: Right now, Russia getting a heavy criticism from the international community over what appears to be a deliberate killings of dozens, maybe hundreds of civilians in Ukraine. Pictures of bodies in the streets have been on TV and on social media um, as some of the troops withdraw from some of these areas to regroup elsewhere. President Biden calling for a war crimes trial against Vladimir Putin as uh, he says he'll seek more sanctions. Journalist Phil Itner is with us again from Lviv in Ukraine. Phil, thank you for talking to us again. Uh, So yeah, some of these pictures, uh, they're just horrendous. I mean, we're talking mass graves in some areas.
5: Yeah, uh, mass graves, um, people with their hands tied behind their back and shot execution style in the back of the head. Um, They are difficult images to watch, but, uh, you know, they might they might be necessary to see, uh, to understand the brutality of what the Russians are doing on the ground here in Ukraine. And uh, while they deny that, uh, they are, they are, that their forces have been doing that, the, the Russians uh, have a history of uh, conducting warfare in this very manner. So uh, they say that uh, it is the Ukrainians themselves who did it in some sort of false flag effort to conceivably garner international support, which is something they kind of already had in many areas, but um, it it, it just belies uh, a level of cynicism coming from the Kremlin and the lack of understanding of of Ukraine and Ukrainians. Um, This country is completely united in defiance against Russia, and um, the concept that they would kill their own and and try and, and try and Pass that off as Russian activity is, is, is a, in my opinion, a gross misunderstanding of, of the nature of this country.
2: So, Phil, as we've discussed many times, you have covered that part of the world for a good number of years. We're now in the, what, fifth week or going into the sixth week, I suppose, of the invasion yeah. at the end of February. Where do you think this is now headed? Because every other day there seems to be contradictory Information: The Russians are regrouping. No, they're not regrouping. They're they're withdrawing. No, they're not withdrawing. They're regrouping. Do you have any any better sense where you are on what it is they are actually doing?
5: Well, I where I am physically in Lviv, no, but I have a a, a network of contacts throughout the country, and I I've been talking to several of them, and I've been covering in addition to to Ukraine and Russia. I was also for many years a, a war correspondent so I have contacts within the US military as well um the the general consensus is that uh this is a, a series of, of regrouping maneuvers and not a retreat uh they may uh, of course it does look as though they are they are for now standing down uh, in their efforts to control the capital. But, um, you know, one of their main strategic goals, as we've discussed, is is trying to secure a land bridge from Russia to Crimea, where they have one of their four major fleets, and it's a, a deep-sea port where they can service their submarines and their larger vessels. So um, that is a, a primary strategic goal for the Russians, and they, they may have decided to pull away from Kiev and, and focus more on the Donbass and trying to connect to uh to the Crimean peninsula uh, but uh, nobody is under the impression that uh that Russia is finished here uh and um it, it will also of course uh in light of the atrocities that we are now seeing the evidence of those uh, alleged war crimes uh how does the international community respond? I mean we we have Biden calling for a trial. We have uh other uh, nation states uh saying that they're going to increase their sanctions program. There's talk of, of removing them from the uh UN uh, uh the the uh human rights uh committee in the, in the UN. Uh so there are going to be repercussions from what we are seeing as the Russians re- uh, you know pull back from Territory that they've held, and and we get to see these things like these mass graves and and the various execution style uh, killings that have been going on. And in addition to that, uh, we do know that the Russians are uh, robbing uh, the, the place; they they're, they're looting whatever isn't tied down. There are reports of Russian troops pulling back into Belarus, but bringing with them um you know goods that they are taking from stores and from even from homes and setting up a kind of a black market within Belarus so there's a lot going on uh and how the international community responds to these new revelations of, of what's what's been happening in occupied territory in Ukraine uh, that will also be determining uh how this war continues but unfortunately sadly to say it doesn't look like it's anywhere near ending.
1: Journalist Phil Idner with us again from Lviv in Ukraine. Phil, thank you. You're listening to K and X in Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. War has changed so many lives in Ukraine. Heard a lot of different stories from people uh, leaving the country, staying, volunteering, helping out in different ways. We're hoping to speak with someone in Lviv who's been volunteering, but also organizing kind of this cyber warrior group to target Russia in cyberspace. So hope to circle up with him soon. In the meantime, actually, I was I was listening to something the other day, and they they brought this up, and we've talked about it on the show here before too, because one of the early warnings was you know Russia's very good at cyber attacks. So so get ready, everybody, uh, in the West as a response to the sanctions. But also they were saying, you know, early on in this, now weeks ago, uh, get ready, Ukraine, because the first thing Russia is going to do is uh, an information blackout. They're going to knock everything yeah. out and then they'll move in with the troops. But that hasn't happened. And one of the reasons someone was saying it was one of the cable channels, they were saying, well, you know, uh, one reason here is either uh, Russia isn't as good as, as they say they were, but also um, the Ukrainians are incredibly tech-savvy. A lot of the work that's done all around the world comes out of Ukraine. So they've got a whole mass of people like this guy that we're hoping to talk to fighting back the whole time.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, there's another theory, too, uh, about why the Russians didn't have some sort of massive cyber attack, uh, attack as some had predicted, and, and that is that uh, they may do something in an incremental basis as, in, as opposed to something just one giant... Attack. You can have, you know, something uh, on a Monday, something else maybe a week or two later and just kind of do it gradually because it's harder to pin blame that way. And it's much harder uh, for the U.S. and Western allies to to track down. And I think we now have do we have Taris with us? We do. <laughs> we do. So uh, Taris, by the way, is uh, a pseudonym, uh, but that's the name he wants to go by. He's one of the people who, as we mentioned, is helping the war effort. He is in Lviv. And has been volunteering, but is also, as we mentioned, organizing a cyber warrior group to target Russia in cyberspace. And uh, we're with him now. So thanks for being with us. So give us an idea about what it is that you're actually doing when it comes to cyber warfare.
6: Yeah. Oh, and uh, thanks for having me. So basically... uh, there are two main fields right now. One is the uh, uh, dose attacks, which is basically creating a huge load on Russian side servers to the point where it actually goes down. And those, those uh, attacks usually target uh, critical infrastructure, Russian government companies that uh, fund uh, the war or uh, just propaganda media. And uh, more, um, uh, more sophisticated uh, pass uh, another one is uh, to find vulnerabilities in Russian sites just from the from the technical perspective and tar- target them directly
1: how successful have you been
6: uh, we uh, we were holding uh, a couple of uh, Russian banks down for for quite a while with uh, uh, funds not being able to, to, to be transferred uh, we uh, took down a bunch of uh, governmental sites. So I, I, I'd i say we were pretty much uh, successful, but there is no success until the war is uh, ended. So so we continue.
2: We were talking, uh, Taris, before you uh, joined us, Mike and I, about uh, there had been this speculation as the war was getting underway that the Russians might launch some massive cyber attack on Ukraine to essentially disable the infrastructure before moving in. That didn't happen. Do you have any sense why that might not have happened?
6: Uh, it, did ha- it did happen, but the scale was uh, low because uh, we were prepared. Just our uh, Internet infrastructure were prepared. A couple of uh, different operators, mobile operators in Ukraine, they they pretty much united into one uh one single entity so that you you, you can basically use services or so whatever uh whatever uh, provider y- y- you can in case of other goes down so i would say we just handle it uh well and uh the the, the russian hacker group is uh is overestimated in, in what they what they can do right now in this war, and uh Right now, uh, everybody takes security measures because uh, we already know how uh, exactly do they attack.
1: Yeah, we were mentioning that earlier, too, before you came on. You guys, and some people didn't realize this up until now, but you guys are really good at this.
6: Yeah, you, you. you well, you know, we got to do what we got to do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Let's see if we can find out a little bit about you, though. I presume that you haven't been doing cyber warfare for a living. Maybe you were. I don't know, but I presume that you you weren't before the war. What kind of work did you do, and how did you so easily sort of glide into this?
6: Yeah, before war, uh, I was working as a, uh, a software engineer and uh, also as some, somewhat a musician, but uh, as uh, the, the true scale war unfolded uh, on twenty fourth um i just i just searched for for ways how can i uh, how can i help without you know just grabbing a gun and uh, running in the fight and so that's that's when i uh, stumbled upon uh, the cyber attacks so i pretty much learned from from the start of the war. And, uh, through all of this time and try to educate other people who want to, uh, engage in, 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 this.
1: Yeah. How did that all come together? I mean, how did you find each other and, and pick up all these skills over, you know, five, six weeks?
6: Oh, well, at first I gathered with a bunch of my friends and we just coped out, uh, you know, the, the, the field of what can we do? How deep can we go in terms of the technical knowledge that we have and what do we need to learn? And, uh, then it is, it is basically like, uh, you know, a chain of people, you know, that that want to involve. And uh, the the, 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 uh, the critical scene in Ukraine that I see is that uh, there are a lot of independent groups like ours that just got organized and dedicated uh, to a lot of people. And uh, so far I know, uh, you know, several groups which count more than... Three hundred thousand people, uh, basically joining from 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 various backgrounds, uh, without uh, knowledge of, of of cyber war specifically, but uh, they want to learn and want to to um, uh, damage uh, r- r- Russian systems the most, so that uh, they cannot continue this war. So, how do so, you know? How
2: yeah. do you know whom you can trust?
6: Uh, in terms of uh, like in, in these groups,
2: yeah. I mean, how, how do you know that you can trust somebody who I, I are you only working with people that you know intimately, or do sort of strangers want to join your efforts? And how do you know?
1: Um,
6: the the scene is uh, just just in my group, uh, that's people uh, that I know or people. Uh, I know that no other people, so it's like a, a pretty close uh, circle. But I would say that uh, it's more of an informational kind of thing. So we don't uh, distribute some specific knowledge that cannot be leaked. It's all available. It's just it's just the Russians cannot do something with it uh, easily. So I ju- ju- just from the purpose of uh, you know keeping the information secure, I don't think that uh, we, we we need to be afraid of uh, of some some shady person entering on group as long as we keep our identities safe you know
1: yeah uh your goal obviously mm-hmm. do whatever you can to, to fight back and you were talking about some of the places you were targeting but is it also in a way when you take down these places or freeze them up for a day or two an effort to try and get you know the russian people over there to notice and, and feel this also
6: In some way, yes, Uh, when we started doing this, uh, it was an idea of, you know, taking over the site and uh, just spreading uh, actual truth information about what is happening to overcome the propaganda that people listen to. But right now, uh, Russian government and Russian uh, society took the most uh, steps to, uh, you know, from the truth to the lies. So, um, I mean that, I hate to say this, but. Pretty much most of the people don't care if if they see a message that there are actual uh, killings and massacres happening in in ukraine Russian people they were just ah another fake and um, there are <laughs> right now there are much more complicated uh, paths to 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 their minds I believe so it's it's more of a uh, indication of the power that we have, and uh, and also just you know uh, doing 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 the actual damage to the economy to the infrastructure.
4: Tell us something. And
6: let,
2: I, yeah. I was going to ask. Tell us a little bit about you and your family and how the war has impacted your family.
6: So yes, I'm I'm originally from Kharkiv, and my family lived uh, there uh, for all of this time, but. Uh, uh, after a week under, um, excessive shelling of Kharkiv, I managed to convince them to, they, they actually should go and it will not end, uh, soon. So, uh, so we managed to move them, like, uh, like my mother, sister and grandparents to, to Lviv and they live with me, with me right now and, uh, try, try to recover from it, uh, still, still, uh, you know they're still super cautious about uh, loud noises and uh, uh, you know stuck in food despite of it uh, being pretty much available here in Uh so yeah Yeah, right now it is uh, I see a lot of people it is hard for them to to leave their uh, house even under excessive shelling like this just because you know, it's a, a mentality. Maybe it's a mentality of uh, older people of our nation that you know you, you just cannot uh, leave the place where your uh, parents lived and where their parents lived and where they actually uh, experienced the old world too. Basically, they they cannot just you know go ahead and leave this place for nothing. Uh, so, yeah, yeah it's a, it's. A, It's a huge struggle for those who who still stayed uh, in in Kharkiv and Mariupol and all of these uh, cities. But but my family, fortunately, is fine.
1: It it must be tough to to see them like that, though, your mom and your sister, to to know what they went through, first of all. And then second, that, yes, they're in a safer place, but they still don't feel safe because the loud noises and the stockpiling of the food. I mean, they're not there yet because they, they know what happened last place they were in Kharkiv.
6: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, there are still sirens and we're still in constant, uh, um, you know, understanding that, uh, that the next challenge may be for or just our house. You know, we, we try not to panic, but think uh, with a cold mind. But, you know, for, for these people who, who actually experience something that, that I c- cannot uh, fully imagine, I, I, I just, um, I just try to to help them with whatever I can. I plan to move uh, them out of country soon.
2: Do you think this is going to go on the fighting for a really long time?
6: Um, I think uh, it it wouldn't go for for long, just the ac- uh, active phase, um, because uh, Russian um, military got huge losses from both, like official um battalions an unofficial uh, army that they have uh, I think that it will still continue and will be harsh in in Donbas region in Kharkiv uh, in Mariupol and um, it, de- it 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 will really depend uh, on on how uh, uh, how soon Ukrainian army will be able to free uh, those regions
1: you said you were thinking of getting the rest of the family out of the country. What What is the plan so far for them if you've even gotten that far yet?
6: Uh, you mean, what is the plan? For, uh, yeah, well, like...
1: where do they want to try to go?
6: Uh, right now, it's uh, Europe. Uh, uh, I, I I have um, a friend, Dave, who who is living in Austria. I met him because. Uh, um some some friend of mine reached out to me and asked if I can host a couple of jour- independent journalists from from Europe and so I did host three of them and one of them uh, turned out to be um this uh, this guy Dave who is who's a great guy who uh, right now he's uh, volunteering in uh, Kiev uh, gathering information about what's happening in European and Bucha documenting all of this. And he was like the first source uh, of the information about this uh, going to me. And um, uh, this guy, he just uh, offered uh, my family to stay in, in in an apartment of his and uh, um, looks like it will be uh, like convenient for, for both uh, for both ends to, to go with like this. So I think we'll, we'll go to, uh, to, to to Europe.
1: Everybody helping however they can. Uh, Taris, thank you for talking to us. Best from us to you and, and the family. He's been in Lviv there volunteering in different ways and again, organizing this uh, cyber group to target Russia in cyberspace. You're
2: listening to X In-Depth with Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman.
1: Is it getting too late to do anything about climate change? New report from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says the world's on track to fail to keep global warming from getting worse. Now this sounds
2: depressing, but is all hope lost now? Will governments muster up the will to make big changes? With us is University of Maryland sociologist Dana Fisher, who is a contributing author to this latest report. Thanks for being with us, so I guess that's the question: is is all hope lost? Will governments just not be able to do what needs to be done in time to stop uh, some sort of cataclysm?
7: Thank you for having me, Mike and Charles. Um, that's that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, uh basically, what the IPCC Working Group Three report uh, that just came out today says is there. Are ample strategies for us to address climate change that exist on the books right now. We could do it, but there is not the capacity to make those kinds of changes. And you know, as somebody who's been studying climate politics in the United States for way too long since the 1990s, at this point we haven't. You know, we've known a lot of this for a really long time, and we have not moved. And we have had a lot of different. Um, Uh, limitations to the capacity to actually implement the kind of changes that are needed so hope is not all lost but we need to we need to move quickly we need to move efficiently and i don't know that our politicians are really up to the challenge
1: so the technology is there we could do it the political will or the politics is getting in the way if for us is there somebody else out there who is making this work are there countries that are doing a bang-up job or are we all kind of failing together
7: well, there are some countries that are doing a pretty good job. Most of those countries, ironically enough, or not really ironically at all, um, happen to have very few fossil fuels to draw upon um, in their countries, and so as a result, they have turned to other renewable measures, um, or they have turned to you know other strategies. Right? I mean, some countries are are leaning into nuclear power now. Nuclear power is a carbon-free energy source. There can be some other tricky problems there, as, as everybody I'm sure knows. So there's challenges there. However, at this point, it provides, you know, some hopeful opportunities potentially as a bridge fuel to get us where we need to go in terms of capacity. But, okay. um, I mean, but overall, I would just say most developed, developed countries are not doing a bang-up job.
2: I was going to say, I mean, so where is the even slimmer of hope? For the countries, and when I say that really matter, I mean in terms of of energy uh, output, uh, carbon output, uh, the United States, Western European countries, China. I mean, where's the even slimmer of hope that that is is going to happen?
7: Well, to be honest, and this is what I actually personally contributed to this report, is I was asked to write specifically about civic activism, civic participation, and the way that movements may, in fact, contribute to changes in climate change. And my, my, my personal opinion is that the sliver of hope is that civil society is going to step in and finally, you know, show the country, you know, show the leaders how it needs to be done. I, but I also believe, and my research has, has provided a lot of evidence, that that's not going to happen until things get quite a bit worse.
1: And what does that look like? Quite a bit worse. How bad well, does it get it looks before like,
7: you know, all of us are you going? Guys are gonna, yeah. you guys in California are going to see a lot more fires. It's going to get a lot more drought. We over here on the east coast are going to have a lot more extreme weather in terms of you know hurricanes, floods. Um, we recently we just had a tornado warning last week, for example. I mean, tornadoes in Washington D.C. not really common, but we'll be seeing a lot more of that before. Um, before we get to the point where where civil society will rise up in the way that probably is needed, because it's just the idea that we can get that kind of attention to an issue that is not really tangible yet. I mean, We can see it, but what we really I mean, what we really need is our policymakers to step up. Unfortunately, therein lies the rub. So uh, without that, our best hope is is ourselves. Right. We can do it.
2: But, it, but isn't it sort of obvious to, to some of the countries that we were just sort of ticking off, uh, the United States and China? I mean, don't those places realize because of the weather events and the climate shifts that we've all been witness to that something is, is greatly amiss? I mean, how could they miss all that?
7: Oh, well, they don't miss all of that. But unfortunately, we, we have consolidated power in many countries that are around fossil fuel extraction, fossil fuel consumption. And we see it in the United States, we see it in Canada, we see it in China for sure. And as a result, those concentrated interests hold, you know, have a stranglehold on decision making. I and mean, we've seen it around the Build Back Better Act in the United States, right? I mean, it's stuck in the Senate. Why? Because of Joe Manchin. And why is Joe Manchin slow, you know, slow walking the whole process until the midterm elections? Because of his coal interests. It's a perfect example, but that's happening around the world. And the infrastructure and investment that has gone into fossil fuel extraction, which has made it possible to, you know, industrialize. But there is no question, based on the findings from this report, as well as working groups two and one, that the pathway we we are on will be disastrous for society.
1: University of Maryland sociologist uh, Dana Fisher, contributing author to this latest report. A nasty fungal disease,
2: mostly hitting people in California's Central Valley in Arizona, is now on the move. It's called Valley Fever. Yeah,
1: you get it from dust. There's been a lot lately. Years of droughts, uh, fungus is spreading. Cases reported in Utah, Oregon, Washington State. Infections in California have been on the rise. Dr. Thomas Yadigar, pulmonologist and medical director of the intensive care unit at Providence Cedar sinai in Tarzana. His hospital has treated people with Valley Fever. Doctor, thanks for uh, coming back to the show. So, yeah, this used to be something you hear about cases uh, kind of off and on. But, what, last 10, 20 years, uh, they have been on the rise.
0: We have. Uh, We've certainly seen uh, more and more cases over the past uh, 10 years. Uh, In the past, they used to be linked to earthquakes as well as wildfires, but uh, we're seeing it uh, more and more regularly now.
2: And what are the symptoms?
0: Well, the symptoms are uh, unfortunately very common with other uh, respiratory illnesses, so cough, fever, shortness of breath. And uh, it's not a typical infection that most people think of, so it usually uh, takes uh, a week or two for it to be diagnosed.
1: And in terms of severity for people, what do they experience?
0: Well, fortunately for the vast majority of people, they, uh, it is a self-limiting and resolving illness. But uh, there's about 10 to 15% where they can develop severe pneumonia. And those are uh, obviously the patients that are at most risk, so are elderly, are immunocompromised uh, patients, patients with diabetes, and uh, for them it can become a life-threatening illness.
2: And is this something that the average physician would be alert to, or would it be likely they would miss the diagnosis?
0: Um, typically, it actually needs an infectious disease physician or a pulmonary physician to, uh, to be diagnosed. Um, a lot of the times uh, the family practitioner or the internist who is uh first contact with a patient may uh, miss that diagnosis.
1: Especially, I guess, um, the the further away you get from the Central Valley, which was your traditional area for it, right? You can probably spot it a lot easier up there, and even then it's difficult, but now that it's turning up in more areas, then people are going to be even more confused.
0: Well, unfortunately, and uh, obviously the pandemic over the past two years um, hasn't helped because uh, it has a lot of uh, symptoms that uh, coincide with COVID-19.
2: So how does a patient know or a potential patient know that the cough that they've had for the past week or so isn't A, a cold, B, COVID, C, valley fever, or D, I suppose, a host of other potential ailments?
0: Well, they need to get evaluated, and uh, fortunately, there are some signs on uh, chest X-ray and some laboratory evaluation, which can um, lead us to the right diagnosis. But, uh, again, the clinician needs to be aware of uh, the differential diagnosis.
1: Now, tell us, again, we mentioned this before, how it comes about. It's a fungal infection. It gets transmitted through dust.
0: Correct. So it's endemic in the southwest, and it lives in the soil. And uh, anything that uh, disturbs the soil, so wildfires, earthquakes, and, as well as construction sites, uh, make it airborne. And when an individual breeds it, um, it can get into the lungs. And for those that are susceptible, it can cause uh, pneumonia.
2: And the treatment for it, how complicated?
0: Well, you you need a special antibiotic. So, the typical antibiotics that we give for community acquired pneumonias would not be effective. So, we need to give an antifungal agent. And sometimes uh, that can be in a pill form if it's um, minor pneumonia. But for those patients that develop severe life threatening infections and need to get hospitalized, then it needs to be in an IV form.
1: We mentioned it is getting worse. Climate change may play a role. Something about the. The heavy rains in, in some winters and then a drought cycle, and then it can spread kind of that way. That's kind of the general idea behind it.
0: Well, you know, unfortunately, with predicted long, longer wildfire seasons and patchy rain showers um, over the next several years, it would be just logical to assume that we will have more of these ecologically based infections.
2: Is there a easy way to prevent oneself from getting it?
0: There really isn't. Um, in even the, the masks that most people have been wearing um, may not necessarily protect you. And uh, certainly, I think after the, the past two years, uh, there is a lot of uh, mask fatigue. I think the uh, important thing is that if you do have symptoms and they are not resolving after the first five to seven days, then it is important to you know, seek attention.
1: Some people used to think it was only like a farm worker thing, but uh, now, like you said, with the different kind of weather patterns, with winds, I mean, it can get you yard work or construction sites or or whatever, basically. So if it's been a long time, you know, and it's not resolving, you got to get looked at.
0: Yes, unfortunately, we're all at risk, and, uh, you know, unless we... uh address the climate crisis and some of the changes that happen with it, we're, we're going to be more, more susceptible to these types of infections.
2: Are, are there new treatments available that weren't perhaps five ten years ago?
0: Uh, fortunately, the, the therapies are effective. Um, they just need to be initiated early on. And uh, we do have, um, as I stated earlier, we do have a choice in terms of oral agents as well as intravenous agents for those that have developed a severe illness.
1: Anybody at higher risk for any particular reason other than people who do work out in the dirt all the time?
0: Well, patients that are immunocompromised, so patients with uh, also with diabetes, as well as um, there are certain populations for unknown reasons. So our uh, African American population, as well as anyone who has uh, Filipino ancestry, are more at risk for developing uh, pneumonia and developing the severe causes, severe illness.
1: All right, that's Dr. Uh, Thomas Yadigar, pulmonologist, medical director of the intensive care units, Providence Cedar sinai Medical Center in Tarzana. Doctor, thanks. That's In Depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.